Praise the Lord. Today I want to share with you about the sovereignty of God and about how that applies to our life. This is something that uh, many people have heard the term the sovereignty of God. I think most of the time it's not really understood what it means, and it certainly is not applied in what I believe to be a scriptural way. First of all, the term sovereignty simply means independent. Uh, that's the literal dictionary definition. Like, for instance, the, for instance, the United States is sovereign. It is a sovereign country. It is independent of any other country. It doesn't take orders from another country. It's not a tributary. It's not a colony. It is independent. It's, it sets its own laws. It governs its own self. It is a self-determining nation. Also, the term sovereign is used like of a monarch many times, a king or a queen who has absolute dictatorship over a place. They're called a sovereign, and that means that they are independent. They don't have a Congress or a Parliament or anybody like that that they answer to, but they are totally independent. They make the laws. They can change the laws. They can do whatever they want to. So that is literally what the term sovereign or sovereignty means. Now, when it's applied to God, what this means is that God is the supreme ruler. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. There is no God above God, so therefore he is sovereign. He is independent. Nobody tells him what to do. Nobody makes his decisions for him. He is the one that calls the shots. Now, everybody, I believe, can agree with that. But when it comes to applying this teaching about sovereignty of God, there has been many, many misapplications about what this means. One of the first things is many people say that, well, God is so sovereign that you can't ever tell what God is going to do. They say that you, you don't know what he's going to do because God doesn't have to answer to man. God doesn't have to do anything. Uh, so, therefore, you don't really know. Now, this has led many people to pray prayers like, Lord, if it be your will. And I've talked to many people, read many letters where a lot of people are afraid to boldly confess that, yes, I believe I'm healed. I know God will heal me. I know God will supply my need. I know God will do this because many people think that that's presumptuous. They think that how could they impose on God and know for sure what he's going to do because God's sovereign and God can do whatever he wants to do. Now, see, that is a misapplication of what sovereignty is. Because it's true, nobody can make God do anything, but this is what people have missed. God has made himself do certain things. God has limited his own sovereignty. He has placed limitations upon it, and he's done that through his word. In Psalms 138, verse 2, the scripture says, my, it says that you have magnified your word above all of your name. The word of God is magnified even above the name of God. The name of Jesus is a strong name. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the word of God is exalted even above that name. Now, that's pretty powerful. Also, Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words would never pass away, not one jot or one tittle. Now, that is how steadfast and how constant the word of God is. Um, and, and the word of God is what the Lord has bound his own sovereignty with. It says out of Psalms chapter 89, verse 34, it says, My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that is gone forth out of my lips. And so he shows right there that when God says something, it is binding. It becomes a covenant, a legal contract. When God says that this is the way it's going to be, 
God has bound himself. And yes, he's sovereign. That means nobody tells him what to do. But God is so sovereign that he has limited his own sovereignty. He has placed bounds upon himself, and he has revealed those bounds unto us through the word of God so that we could know of a certainty what God's will is, and we wouldn't have to wish and hope and think and pray and never know what God's going to do. Now, that's really important because the principles involved in faith and receiving from God make it clear that you've got to know what God's will is. Like, for instance, out of 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, the Scripture says, This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, we know that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, then whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've desired of Him. Now, that's a lot of confidence. That's a lot of an assurance in knowing. It says if we ask anything according to His will. Now, many people would say, well, you just never know what his will is. He's sovereign. He may will it to be this way one time and will it to be the next. No, you see, he can't do that. He can't waver and change like that because he's already said in his word that I am the Lord thy God. I change not. When he says that this is what I'll do, he will do that. He can't change or he would, he would lie. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6 that it's impossible for God to lie. So he will not alter from those kind of things. So God's word is his will. So when it says if we ask anything according to his will, that's talking about if we ask anything according to his word. When you pray the word of God, you have prayed the will of God, and you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have received. Also in Mark chapter 11, verse 24, the scripture says there, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. It didn't say you might have them. It said you shall have them. But it's dependent upon you believing that you receive, and the Scripture says, when you pray. You can't believe that it's yours when you see it, but when you pray, you've got to believe that you received it. Now, how could you be bold enough to presume that God uh, gave it to you before you see it? How do you know he's going to do that? Because we put faith in the Word of God. We trust that when God promised something in His Word, He will fulfill it. We trust that God has limited His own sovereignty and has bound Himself by His Word and said, I will do this. You can count on it. I am not going to change. I won't waver. And that's what we call faith. And therefore, we receive. You must believe that you receive when you pray. That's one of the principles of faith. Another scripture on this is James chapter 1, verse 5. Through seven, where the scripture says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now that scripture shows us that when you ask, you must believe that you receive and you can't waver, you can't go back and forth. Now you see, the way some people have applied sovereignty, it makes you waver because you say, well, you know, God's sovereign, you never know what God's going to do. Maybe he's going to choose to heal one person, but he, maybe he wouldn't choose to heal me. Maybe he's a respecter of persons. Maybe he'll do it for that person, but he won't do it for me. You see, that gives us a, a concept of God as being schizophrenic, as not being consistent. And it keeps us from being bold, and it makes us waver, because how can you know what God's going to do? You've got to understand that God has limited his sovereignty by his own power. Nobody else could make him do it, but God 
to be willing to be consistent and to reveal himself unto us has limited himself, said, this is what I will do, and we can count on it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but those words won't pass away. And so we've got to get away from that kind of thinking about sovereignty of God in, uh, when it's applied in a way that makes you waver and not stand steadfast. You've got to know that you receive because God has bound himself by his word. So that is one of the first applications right there. Another application is many people say, well, because God is sovereign, because he's all-powerful, because nobody is above him, therefore he must be in control and he must be responsible for everything that happens to us. Now that again looks good, but that again is a misapplication of the sovereignty of God. That would be true if God retained all of his power and all of his sovereignty unto himself. But the truth is God has shared that, that sovereignty with us. His power and his authority, he has shared it with us. Human beings are a unique creature in the sense that we have a free will and God doesn't violate our free will except in judgment. But, I mean, he doesn't just intervene in your life against your will and make you do things. You have a choice. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, he says, Behold, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. And the understood subject of that sentence is, Therefore, you choose life that both you and your seed after you may live. Now, God revealed that he gave us a choice. He said, You choose life. And, of course, you could take literally thousands of examples in the Word of God where this same choice is put before us. The Bible says, choose you this day whom you shall serve. And on and on the choice goes. God gave us a free will. And that free will, God gave us the ability to choose death. Now, if you choose death, if you don't choose God's ways, if you choose to follow the devil's way, then you have chosen death. And it's not God that allows problems to come into your life. It's you that chose those problems. God shared his power and his authority with you and gave you the ability to choose. Now, there's a lot of scriptures on this. One of them is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And here the scripture says... Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now that's talking about God. And many people would agree totally with that scripture just the way that I quoted it. But you see, that's not exactly correct. It is not true. Now you listen and hear all of this out. It is not true that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. It is true that he could do that if he had not chosen to bind himself by things he said in his word. But this very scripture that we're talking about, Ephesians 3.20 says, Unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. And then it goes on to say, According to the power that works in us. You see, God put a limitation on that. It is not a matter of God just working in our life without us. He flows through us. God flows through his people. Now that's really important that you get that. God flows through his people. He doesn't do things without us. We certainly don't do anything without him, but he doesn't do things without us. God flows through his people. Another scripture on this is out of Romans chapter 8, verse 17, where it says that we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. The term joint heir 
is referring to, like, for instance, if we received an inheritance, if there were two people that received an inheritance and they became joint heirs, it wouldn't mean that one or the other was able to cash a check. It would mean that both of them would have to sign to cash a check. One would have no power of attorney without the other. Both of them would have to do it jointly. And that's the way it is when we become joint heirs with the Lord. We can't do anything without the Lord. But, on the other hand, now some people will misunderstand this. You may think it's blasphemy. But God has chosen not to do anything without us. He had power to do it, but he has chosen not to do it that way. He's bound himself by saying he's going to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So he has bound himself to the point that you can literally say God cannot do anything without us. You could say would not, cannot, doesn't matter. He is not going to do anything without us. God flows through people. Now, some people think, well, that's, you know, they, that just goes totally against everything they believe. They believe that God is just in control and that God sovereignly moves and does things sometimes without us being involved in it at all. But that simply isn't true. God always flows in accordance with us. Now, there are varying amounts of this, and we'll explain that a little bit later. But it's important for you to see that God is not taking control over everything by himself. Now, I emphasize that word everything. There are certain things that God has retained control over and hasn't shared with us, but then there's other things that he has shared with us. Out of Acts chapter 1, here's a passage of Scripture where Jesus was giving last-minute instructions to his disciples before he was caught up in the clouds and went back to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And as he was talking, his disciples asked him a question, and they said, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? In other words, would you set up your earthly reign right now? When is this going to happen? And in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, this is the answer that Jesus gave unto them. He said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, this is talking about something that God has retained totally under his control. It is totally at his discretion. When it uses this term power, it's, it's evident that it's talking about that this is under his control. It's under his authority, and nobody else has this authority. Jesus said that the angels in heaven and even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, doesn't know the time that the Lord has willed for setting up this kingdom. That is something that God the Father has retained under his control or under his power only. Now, I believe all of us could agree on that. But then in the eighth verse, it turns around and it says, but you shall receive power. Now, the eighth verse starts with that word, but. And in English, that word, but is called a conjunction. That's a type of speech, a figure of speech. It's called a conjunction. And that means it's tying together phrases, tying together thoughts. So the eighth verse isn't a brand new thought. We've pulled this verse out many times and taught about the baptism of the Holy Ghost which that certainly applies, but let's take it in context. He just was talking about that there are certain things under God's power or under his control that you have no business messing with. There are certain things God controls, and he didn't share that control with us, but in the eighth verse, he says, but you shall receive power. In other words, he says, but there are certain things he gave under your control. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And so there's certain things that God put under our control. One of them, listed right here in Acts chapter 1, is the power to be a witness. 
the Lord Jesus witnessed and bore witness of the Father when he was on earth. But when he went back to heaven, he committed that power to be a witness unto us, unto his church. And brothers and sisters, it is not God who has willed that people live on this earth and not hear the gospel. That is not God's will. God is willing that no man should perish, is what it says out of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But the reason some people haven't heard the gospel is because those who the Lord committed that power unto have not used it properly. The church has gone through the dark ages where, man, they couldn't even uh, survive themselves, much less be a testimony or witness to anybody else. And because of it, there have been people that haven't heard the gospel. Not that it was not God's will for them to, but God committed that power unto us, and he did. It. He uses us to preach the gospel and to bring forth his word, and we are the ones that have dropped the ball and that have missed it. Now, this is evident over in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, because in the 10th chapter of Acts, there was a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile, and he was a very devout man. He was seeking God. And he was asking about salvation. He was seeking how to get into right standing with God. And an angel appeared unto him. And this angel told him to send to Joppa and ask for Peter, who was staying in the house of Simon the Tanner, and that Peter would come and tell him everything that he needed to know. And, of course, most of you are familiar with the story. Peter went and preached the gospel to him. Cornelius and all of his household and all of his friends received the Lord, were baptized in the Holy Ghost, and spoke in tongues and prophesied. But it's important here that you realize that this angel that appeared to him didn't preach the gospel to Cornelius. Why? Now, that angel knew the gospel. He knew what it took for salvation. But that angel didn't preach the gospel. He had Cornelius send to Joppa and ask for Peter, a man, to come. Why? Because God committed the authority to be a witness unto people, unto his church, unto the members of his church. Angels don't have authority to preach the gospel. So therefore, you see, they couldn't do it. Now, that shows that God has given us authority to do certain things. That's what it says. You shall receive power, authority, control over witnessing, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Another thing God's committed under our control is rebuking the devil. It says out of James chapter 4, Verse 7, the scripture says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It says, Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Not from God, but from you. God's already beat the devil, and the devil isn't trying to attack God directly. He's attacking God's people. The devil has no power against God, but the devil does have power to try and deceive us. And if we'll submit to Satan's lies, then because of our joint airship with God, we can stop the flow and the power of God because we are the only ones that have power. We are the ones that God has committed power to. And if we don't use it, then we can hinder the flow of God here on the earth. The devil can't, so the devil has to tempt us and get us to do it. And that's the reason that he fights us so strong. That's the reason the Bible says you resist the devil and he will flee from you. God gave us a power to resist and to rebuke the devil and, and cast him out. In Mark chapter 16, the scripture says, These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. That's in verse 17. And it says that they shall cast out devils. We have to rebuke the devil. God won't rebuke the devil for us. We have to rebuke the devil. That's some of the power that's been given unto us. And there's a lot of people that have sat there and said, Oh, God, why don't you do something? The devil's just on my back, and the devil's doing this, and the devil's doing that. Oh, God, do something. 
And then we wonder, well, if God's sovereign, why doesn't God do something? You see, God has limited that sovereignty. It's not up to God to rebuke the devil for us. He gave us that power. He's already triumphed over the devil, and he gave that power to us. And if we don't resist the devil, he won't flee. If we don't cast out devils, they won't leave because God committed that power to us. It's not by our power that we're doing that. It's God's power, but yet that power is in us, and we have to take it, and we have to use it and resist the devil. So God gave us power to resist the devil. Also, the Bible says that he gave us power over unclean spirits in March, in uh, Matthew chapter 10 to cast out devils, to heal all sickness and all manner of disease. God gave us authority over that. Again, in Mark chapter 16, verse 18, it says, These signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. God committed his healing power unto us. And many people are saying, God, why don't you heal me? If you're a sovereign God, if you're all-powerful, why are you letting this happen? It's not God that's letting it happen. He has committed that power unto us, and we haven't taken that power and used it, and so we are the ones that are that's allowing it to happen. Now, this is really important because a lot of people are confused, and they think, if God is God, why doesn't God do something? Why has God allowed this? It's important for you to realize it is not God's will for you to be sick. It is not God's will for you to be under oppression. It's not God's will for the devil to be winning over you. Somebody says, well, if it's not, why is he letting it happen? It's not God that's letting it happen. He has committed power and authority to you and me, and we are the ones that are allowing the devil to triumph over us because we have been ignorant about the things of God. Now, we may blame it on our denomination or we may blame it on something else, but all of us can read and we can learn for ourselves. The Holy Ghost has given us for a teacher, and the ultimate responsibility falls back on us that we haven't taken our authority and we haven't used it properly. So it's not God, it's not a sovereign God who's allowed these things to happen. It's a sovereign God who limited himself when he gave us and shared that power and authority with us. And by doing it, it made us responsible, and we are the ones that have allowed things to happen. Now, some people get condemned by that, and they say, Brother, that bothers me because you're saying I'm the one responsible. I thought God's the one that let all this mess happen. And what you're saying condemns me because you're saying that it was my fault that so-and-so died. It was my fault that this problem happened. When I admit that sometimes that doesn't feel good, but instead of condemning me, it blesses me because... If I think God is the one that has willed for my situation to be the way it is, then I'm in trouble because, you see, God really is sovereign. I can't dictate to God, and I can't make God do anything. I can't tell God that you've got to heal me, so I can't change God. And if God's the one that has willed for these problems in my life, then I'm in trouble. I just have to learn to roll with the punches, and you see, that's what a lot of people have learned to do very well. But when I find out that I'm the problem and that I'm the one who failed to take my authority because I didn't know it and I didn't use it, well, then that blesses me even though I may have been the problem. It blesses me because now I know where the problem is and I can change me. I can't change God, but I can change me and I can start taking my authority. And maybe the devil has stolen from me in the past, but praise God, he won't steal from me again because I learned the truth that God has shared his sovereignty with me. He's given certain things under my control and praise God, I don't have to just sit there and roll with the punches. I can take that authority and power and use it and destroy the works of the devil. 
Now, here's a scripture that will verify the exact thing we've been talking about out of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The scripture says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some man counts slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, this scripture makes it as clear as just any scripture could that it is not God's will that any man should perish. The Bible says in John 3:16 that God so loved the world, not only the Christians, not only the church, but he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God made a provision for the entire world. First John chapter 2, verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He made an atonement for the whole world. It is not his will that any person die and go to hell. That is God's will, and yet God's will is not coming to pass, and it is not going to come to pass. Even Jesus himself showed us. He said that there would be more people enter in by the broad gate unto destruction than there would by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. So Jesus himself said that the perfect will of God is not coming to pass. Why? Because God's not all-powerful? No, God's powerful, but... He loves us so much he gave us a free will. He's not going to make anybody get saved. He gave us a free will, and you can choose death or you can choose life, like that scripture we quoted out of Deuteronomy 30, 19. You can choose uh, heaven or you can choose hell. The choice is yours. God gave you that choice. God's will is that everybody choose him, but he doesn't impose that will upon you. You can choose heaven or you can choose hell. The choice is yours. So it is God's perfect will that every person be saved, but God's perfect will isn't coming to pass. You could go on and say it's God's perfect will that every person be healed because he also said in 3 John verse 2, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. But God's will doesn't come to pass. Now in the same way as we know that not everybody's saved, well, we also know that not everybody's healed. But you see, there's an inconsistency here because some people look at uh, everybody not being healed and they say, well, brother, it must not be God's will to heal everybody or everybody would be healed. I've heard people say that. And, and they go back to this concept about the sovereignty of God. If God's really in control and if it was really God's will for you not to be sick, then you wouldn't be sick. Well, let's apply that same principle back to forgiveness of sins. If it's really God's will that no man perish, then why are people perishing? Why are there people that are going to hell? It's because God's will does not automatically come to pass. He committed power to us when he gave us a free will, and he's not going to violate that will except in final judgment. And in final judgment, he's not actually violating the will of a person because if a person chose the devil over God, then they're just going to reap what they've chosen. Now, they may not like hell. They may not have seen the full ramifications of what they've done, and they may beg and plead, you know, oh, God, don't send me to hell, but yet actually he's not violating their will. He's giving them what they chose. They may have been deceived or whatever, but you see, that's the only time God will overstep a person's will is in final judgment. And so that's the reason not everybody is saved. Well, that's also the reason that not everybody's healed. God has already made provisions for our healing, but he committed the power that it takes to get healed back unto us. He says, you lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. 
I used to want to see people healed, and I'd pray, God, you know, Mark 16:18 says, lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. And I prayed and prayed and prayed, but I didn't see people healed until I started laying hands on the sick, until I started using that authority. I was desiring to see the right things, but desire isn't faith. I had to step out and use that authority before I saw come to pass what God wanted. Now, if it would have been just God alone that was doing the healing, then people would have been healed. But, you see, God uses people. It's according to the power that works in us. That's the reason not everybody is saved, and that's also the reason not everybody's healed, not everybody's prospered, not everybody's happy, not everybody's all of these things. And it's important that you realize this because through people misapplying this truth about God's sovereignty, Satan has gotten a lot of people into a situation where they won't resist sickness and they won't resist poverty, and they won't resist the problems that they're in because they think, well, God's all-powerful. God must have allowed this. There must be some reason for God doing this. And so, therefore, they aren't resisting the problem because they think God is actually the author of it. And if you think God is involved in your problem, well, then you'd be dumb to sit there and fight it. And so, see, that's the reason a lot of people have submitted to it and have begun to say, well, God must have some purpose in me having this. And it takes away that resistance. And that resistance against the devil is a necessity for sin, triumph over the devil and over the things he brings. You have to resist the devil before, before he'll flee from you. So this misapplication about the sovereignty of God has been a big problem and has been it has been a faith killer. It has stopped faith in a lot of people. But because they've actually been submitting themselves under some problem that Satan brought, thinking that God did it because of this teaching about sovereignty, not understanding that God has limited that sovereignty or he's shared it with us. And so you have a certain power committed unto you. Now, I'd like to give some examples of this in Jesus' ministry. First of all, out of Mark chapter 6, verse 5. Here's an instance where Jesus was in his hometown, and he was ministering to the people, and the people didn't accept him. The people began to ridicule him, saying, We know you. You're the carpenter's son. You're the, you're the son of Mary, and your brothers and your sisters are here with us. And they didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah because they had seen him, and they just couldn't accept that this one that they had grown up with was God. And so therefore they rejected him, and they began to ridicule him. And in Mark chapter 6, it says that Jesus said this unto him. He says, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Now, the scripture here says that he could do no mighty work. It didn't say that he wouldn't do any mighty work. It said he could do. Now, there's a difference. That means it was his will to heal, but yet he didn't do it because of a problem. Now, the problem wasn't within Jesus. Jesus was the sinless Son of God. There was no problem in him. There was no doubt. There was no unbelief. There was no sin. And I want to emphasize this. Because it wasn't because of his limitation that he couldn't do it, but this shows God in the flesh. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, and it showed that God could not do something. 
Now, many people see that talk about sovereignty, which, again, I believe in the sovereignty of God as it truly is. But the way some people have applied it, they, they, this would be totally contrary to them. They would think that's blasphemy to say there's anything God can't do. But here's an example of God in the flesh not able to do something. Not that he didn't have power to do it, but he wouldn't use that power to override a person's will. He committed himself to that person and told them, you choose. These people chose death, they chose rebellion, they chose doubt and unbelief, and God would not overstep their will. In the next verse, it says, it was because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. If you'll compare this with Matthew 13:58, the same instance listed in a different gospel, it'll make it clear that the thing that stopped it wasn't Jesus' problem or inadequacy. He had no problem. He had the power to do it, but he couldn't use that power because he had bound himself by his word. These people had rejected him, and through unbelief, they stopped the power of God. Now, that shows that God flows through us. It is according to the power that works in us. Now, another thing that people have done many times, they say, you know, when they refer to... Uh, person receiving a miraculous healing or something. I've heard this said many, many times, that this was just a sovereign healing. God moves sovereignly. And what they mean by that is that that person exhibited no faith. They didn't believe God for it. They weren't expecting it, didn't necessarily want a healing or anything. God just chose to heal them. There is no reason for it. There was no response on that person's faith. Nothing was used. God just did it totally without that person. Now, that is not scriptural. Now, if that was true, then Jesus could have done that here in his hometown, but yet the scripture shows us he could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. And again, I go back to that scripture in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It's according to the power that works in us and many, many other passages of scripture where you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. God has to have a response of faith. He flows through us. It is according to the power that works in us that God performs these miracles. Now, I know it doesn't look like that in some cases. There are some cases where it looks like a person had no faith at all. The answer to that is that there are different amounts of faith that a person can release. Now, this is my terminology that I've attached to it, but yet the principle is in the Word, and we'll show this to you. There is an active type of faith. And what I mean by that is a faith that is alive, that is vibrant, that is strong, and that can reach out and obtain from God. Now, this is listed in Mark chapter 5, where the woman who had the issue of blood, she came and said, see, she confessed with her mouth, which is one of the ways you release your faith, if I may but touch his clothes, I shall be made whole. Not I might be, but I shall be. And she persevered and pushed her way through a crowd that was thronging Jesus and touched his clothes. And immediately when she did virtue, went out of Jesus into her, and he turned around and he told that woman, he says, your faith hath made you whole. He didn't say, my faith made you whole. He said, your faith made you whole. Her faith was so strong that it just reached out and obtained things from God. Now, that's what I call an active faith. But then on, in other places, there is a passive faith, what I call a passive faith. In other words, there still is faith involved, but it's not a strong faith. In other words, if that person had to receive from God only on their faith, not without somebody else helping them, they'd never obtain because their faith isn't strong enough to reach out and obtain from God the way this woman did, but yet they do have some degree of faith. And again, I emphasize this, that there has to be some degree of faith, even if it's a small amount there, 
and operative in that person because the Bible says he does exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. The faith working in us is that power. And there has to be some of that there. If there didn't have to be any response of faith, then Jesus in his hometown could have done whatever he wanted to do, but it says he couldn't do any mighty work. Now, let's take some scriptural examples. I know that there's some people that would say, Brother, what about these instances in the Bible where Jesus healed somebody and they didn't have any exhibit of faith at all? Well, there, I don't believe that there are any examples like that. Let's look at some that appear to be that way. First of all, out of Luke chapter 7, here's an instance where Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. Now, many people would take this example out of Luke chapter 7, verse 11, and they'd say, what kind of faith did that man have? He was dead. He couldn't have released any faith. Well, first of all, I think that's a misunderstanding to think that a dead man doesn't have any faith or any say-so. I've seen a number of people who were raised from the dead, talked with them personally, and I've heard many, many testimonies who have come back, people who have come back from the dead, and in many of those cases, God told them, he says, Are you, do you want to go back? Or he would say something like, you need to go back, and that person would have to submit to it. They still have a choice. I believe that a person does have a choice. Just because you quit breathing in this physical body, you don't quit living, you're still alive, and the soulish realm, the spirit and the soul leave the body at death, and that soulless realm is the part that has the will and has the choice, and I believe that you still have that choice. Now, I won't be dogmatic with that, but I think that it's, uh, I sure don't believe anybody can be dogmatic to say a person who's dead doesn't have any choice or doesn't have any will involved in it. I think that they do. In this instance where this man was raised from the dead, this was a funeral procession. They were going to bury this man, and this was the only son of this widow woman. Now, in the Jewish days, and still to this day, they show their respect for the dead by wailing and travailing. Their mourning shows their respect for the dead. And they even hired people, paid them money to come in and help them cry and wail because they figured that they were showing respect. So here's a funeral procession. These people were going to bury the dead, and here comes Jesus right in the middle of this funeral procession and stops the whole thing. Now, if you'll look at this, like it's reality rather than just some story someplace and think about it. If something like that was to happen today, if you were to go up and stop some funeral procession and get into the hearse, you know, that's driving along and tell the people in there, says, don't cry anymore, I guarantee you, boy, somebody would be on your back to pull you off. They'd haul you off to jail. They'd do something. Now, they tried that with Jesus on a lot of other occasions. There's no reason to believe that they wouldn't have tried it this time except that when he walked up to this widow woman and he told her, he says, weep not. I personally believe, and I believe that the context of this story will verify it, that that woman must have responded to him because she's the one that had the authority over that funeral procession. Everybody there, all of the men who would have stepped in to help, I'm sure were looking at her to see her reaction. She must have responded to Jesus positively. She must have quit weeping. Why? Well, maybe she had heard about Jesus before and recognized him. Maybe it was just the authority of his words at that time. But somehow or another, God pricked her heart, and she knew that there was power available to change that situation. And she responded in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus used her faith to intervene in that situation. I believe that's the reason he went to that woman and talked to her first. Why didn't he just walk straight up to the casket and raise a man from the dead? I believe he used that woman's faith. 
And the scripture does say that out of 1 Corinthians 7:14 that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. And that scripture shows that your faith, the faith of a parent, can apply to a child. Not maybe totally, but it is certainly an inroad into that child. You can sanctify them through your faith. So Jesus talked to that woman, and I believe there was a response of faith, and I believe the people in the funeral procession submitted themselves because they saw that she had responded, and there was a response of faith. Again, in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus couldn't do any mighty works there, and I believe that in this city of Nain, he couldn't have done any mighty works unless there was some response of faith. And I can see it when I look at this because this woman apparently responded to him. She did not rebel at what he said, and as a result, her son was raised from the dead. Here again is another example over in the ninth chapter of the book of John. And in this instance, Jesus ministered a healing to a man who was born blind. Now, this man didn't come to Jesus like the majority of people Jesus ministered healing to. Jesus and his disciples were walking through the city of Jerusalem, and they passed this man and Jesus' disciples pointed this man out and began to ask him questions about that man. So this man didn't make any response of faith towards the Lord Jesus at all. Jesus didn't even ask him a question. And so some people take this as an example and say, well, see, this shows that it was just a sovereign act of God. God did it independent of anything else. Well, let's look at it. The Lord spit on the ground and made clay out of that spit and put on that man's eyes, told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and that he would come seen. Now, why did he do that? Some people think, well, who knows why he did it? You know, God just did some strange things. You know, he, they think that there's no rhyme or reason to the things that God did. Well, the majority of the instances, Jesus just spoke to people or would lay his hand upon them, and they were healed. Why did he do that to this man? I believe there's a very logical, simple explanation, and that is that this man had had no action of faith. He didn't come to Jesus. He didn't ask for healing. He didn't do anything. But the Lord Jesus extended healing towards him and put this clay upon his eyes. That clay didn't have any medicinal quality in it. I've heard some people say that that's what he was doing. That shows that medicine is the way that you're supposed to receive your healing because God put this clay on there and they believe that it had medicinal qualities. Well, now, if that's true that spitting on the ground and making clay and putting that on that eyes could open up the eyes of a blind man, if that has medicinal qualities, why don't people do that today? There wasn't any medicinal quality in that. What it did, it gave this man an opportunity to act in faith. He had to walk at least half of a mile, maybe three-quarters of a mile, through the busy streets of Jerusalem to go to that pool of Siloam and wash. And he's no different than you and I. If he had been in doubt and unbelief, he would have said, This is dumb. What am I doing walking through the streets with mud on my eyes and spit dripping down my face? He says, I'll wipe it off and sit back down and go begging again. But you see, there was faith. If there wasn't faith, he would have never have gone to the effort that he did. That man responded in faith. Now, his faith wasn't the active type that reached out and grabbed Jesus as he passed by and said, Lord, heal me. But his was the passive type of faith that once Jesus extended that healing towards him, he would receive it and operate in it. And here's another example over in Acts, the third chapter. I've heard some people use this to say that this man who sat at the gate of the temple, he was just healed sovereignly by God, that uh, this man didn't ask Peter and John for healing, that they just gave it to him. Well, in the first place, you see, here's two men 
physical human beings, Peter and John, who released their faith, and God used their faith. But even in this man who was healed at the gate of the temple, he had a faith too. He responded, and this is evident over in the 16th verse of Acts chapter 3, when Peter was telling everybody about what had happened, he said in verse 16 that his name, speaking of the name of Jesus, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And Peter right there in explaining this said that there was faith involved and he, he brought the faith of that man into account. He said it was the faith of that man that has made him strong. So there was faith on that man's part. Regardless of whether it, whether you can see the response of faith, there has to be some faith there or you couldn't see that healing manifest. Now, let me give some personal examples where I've learned some of these things. Like I used to minister or usher in Catherine Kuhlman's meetings whenever she came to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I did it about four or five times. And they always trained the ushers. And one of the laws that they had at every one of those meetings was that nobody could ever get up on the stage and testify to a healing unless they had proven it to at least two ushers, the one who was closest to them and then the head usher. And so one of those services I was at, there was a man there who had a broken leg. It was, and it was in a cast, not a full cast, but a partial cast, and then ace bandages wrapped around it. And the very first healing that was called out was a broken leg. And so this man walked up on the stage, and in front of over 3,000 people, he testified that he had been healed. Catherine Kuhlman made him take all that stuff off of his leg and then stomp his foot on the ground and run back and forth across the stage to prove that he was totally healed without any pain. And then she asked him, she said, did you believe God for this healing? And he said, no. He said, I don't even believe in this stuff. He says, I'm not even a Christian. He said, I didn't come here today to get healed. He says, I don't believe this is real, and I came here to make fun of it. And so her reaction, and I'm sure many of the people in that place, their immediate reaction was that, well, this is just a sovereign act of God. God just sovereignly healed this man. But that is not actually what happened. There was a response of faith. Now, this man didn't have the active type of faith that reached out and believed God for that healing. He didn't come expecting it or believing it. But Catherine Kuhlman came expecting and believing for miracles. She came releasing her faith. So there was faith there. And then there was faith on the part of all of the ushers. There was faith on the part of literally thousands of people that were in that place, came expecting great things. So through their faith, healing was released towards this man, not on the basis of his faith, but on the basis of their faith. But when the healing came, then that man responded to it with his faith. And he got up, and he, he could have sat in that chair and said, No, this isn't me. I don't believe in this stuff. This can't be me. And he could have gone out of there still with a broken leg. But you see, he did respond, and he got up, took his cast off, and proved it to at least two people, then got up in front of thousands of people and acted on it. Now, if he didn't believe that he was healed, he wouldn't have got up there and have stomped his foot and have run back and forth. You see, he did have faith, not an active type of faith that reached out and obtained it on his own, but yet when somebody else believed for him and extended that healing towards him, he accepted it. And so there was a form of faith in operation. And another, uh, during another Catherine Kuhlman meeting in the same place, well, it was in the same area. The first one I mentioned just now was in Dallas, and then she was in Fort Worth at another time, and I was over there, and I was an usher at that meeting, and we took a woman with us who had six things wrong with her. And one of Catherine Kuhlman's workers named Maggie was walking up and down the aisles, and she's the one that called out a lot of the healings, and she leaned over 
across the aisle, this woman was sitting six people in from the aisle, and Maggie told this woman, she says, the Lord is healing you of, and she named everything that she had wrong with her from the top of her head down to the bottom of her feet. I mean, it was miraculous, a strong manifestation of the gift of the Spirit. And this woman says, no, that's not me. And Maggie said, are you sure? And she repeated that, and this woman said, no, it's not me. We knew it was her because we knew what was wrong with her. But you see, she didn't receive it by faith, and so she left that place still with all of those sicknesses in her. Now, here's two people that I've just given you examples of. Neither one of them came believing for healing. But healing was extended towards them through the faith of other people. One person received it by faith and left healed. The other person rejected through doubt and unbelief and left sick. And that shows you again that there had to be some measure of faith involved. God does not just sovereignly move to heal. In other words, he does not heal and violate the sovereignty or the power that he's given to us and to our free will. If that was so, then I go back to Mark chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus would have done that in his hometown, but he couldn't do it because of their unbelief. And so God does not move independent of us. This is important because a lot of people have not seen the importance of them getting into faith and operating in faith. And so they've just been sitting there in doubt and unbelief and allowing the devil to steamroll them, thinking, well, if it's really God's will, it would have come to pass by now. It must not be God's will. And, man, if the devil can ever trick you into that and get you to thinking that it's not God's will for you to be well, I promise you, you'll never get well. So you've got to know God's will, and you've got to know why sometimes you don't see things come to pass. It's not because it's not God's will. It's because God committed that authority and power to us, and God's will doesn't just automatically come to pass. He shared that power with us, and we have to be faithful to use it. There was an instance where I ministered to a man one time who uh, wasn't saved yet. His wife had been saved. And, but he had been listening. He had been coming to our church services, and he was really getting convicted. And he was getting receptive to the Lord, but he wasn't saved yet. And we had prayed, and they'd gotten a house. They'd, gotten a, they'd seen a lot of miracles. We prayed, and he got a job. And he was working. But he had ulcers. He had had a history of ulcers. And because of all of the turmoil that was going on, his wife getting saved and things like that, his ulcer flared up again. And I was over painting a house one day, and this man, uh, his, uh, this man and his wife came up to me and said that uh, they'd found out that he had an a ulcer, that his job had sent him to the doctor, and the doctor had put him on a diet of nothing but spoonfuls of liquids. He couldn't eat any solid food, and they said it'd probably be six weeks to six months before he could go back on the job. And his wife was just a brand-new believer, and, man, they had really had financial problems, and she says, the devil's not going to steal from us. We're going to pray, and he'll be healed, and he's going back to work. And so I looked at the man, and I said, well, do you believe God will heal you? Now, this guy wasn't saved, and he had uh, quite a few problems, but one thing he didn't have, he wouldn't pretend about anything. He wouldn't try and impress anybody. He'd tell you what he thought, and he just looked at me. He didn't say anything, and I could tell from the way he was reacting that he didn't have the faith to believe God was going to heal him of that ulcer, but he didn't reject it either. I could tell he wanted to believe, but he just wasn't to the point of believing yet, so I rephrased my question, and I said this. I said, I tell you what, your wife and I will agree. And the Bible says whatsoever we agree on, you know, touching anything on this earth, it'll be done. And I said, God's going to heal you. Healing will come into your body. And once it's there, will you accept it and believe that you are healed, believe God did it, and confess it to other people? And he shook his head. He said, I can do that. 
See, he wanted to believe in that healing, but he wasn't sure he could believe for it. But if we could, he would accept it by faith. So we laid hands on him and prayed for him. And anyway, God miraculously healed him. I mean, instantaneously healed him. And his pain left. I hit him in the stomach where, I mean, he'd had terrible pain, and all of a sudden his pain was just gone. And he believed it, and he went home and acted in faith. He ate a steak and jalapeno peppers. I mean, the things that could have hurt his stomach the worst, he went home and acted on his faith, and he was totally free from that ulcer, and he went back to work. But you see, there had to be a response on his part. Now, that man didn't have an active type of faith that could have reached out and obtained, obtained healing on his own. But he had a passive type of faith that, yes, I'll believe it if you'll help me. And that's what we've got to have. We've got to at least have that manifestation of faith. Now, the best way to receive from God is to reach a place where your faith is like the woman that had the issue of blood, where you can just reach out and obtain from God on your own. That's what we're striving towards, and that's the way that our faith should be. And when we do that, nothing's impossible unto us. Man, we can overcome in every situation. But until we get there, God has given to the church the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of miracles, the gifts of healing, people that come through so that people who yet aren't developed in faith and don't have very much faith operative, they can have just this small type of faith in manifestation, a passive type of faith, where they really will receive it if they can see some kind of physical manifestation, you know, if there is just some little something that they can respond to, then they can receive it. But that is not the best way. And many people have never gone past this act passive type of faith, never have gotten into a strong, active type of faith, and as a result, they just have to live from one miracle meeting to the next until one man with a gift of the Spirit comes through town, and it's caused confusion, and there's many people saying they believe in healing that don't receive healing except once every two or three years when somebody comes through town with a gift of healing on their life, and brothers and sisters, that's not the way God intended it to be. We can grow and get strong in faith until we to where we can see victory every time. But I think one of the things that really is important to get to that place is to understand this about the sovereignty of God. Yes, God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is independent. Nobody dictates to him. Nobody makes him do anything. But in love, God has done certain things, has promised he would never violate those things, and has revealed those things unto us. He did that because he loved us and he wanted us to know his will. But at the very time he did it, it also placed responsibility on us to believe his word and to believe those promises and to take the responsibility that it put upon us and use it. And if we don't use it, then that very thing that God did out of love in sharing his power with us becomes a hindrance because we cease to use that power. We have to use it for it to work. And if it isn't working, if there are things that don't look like they're working in your life, it's not because God is sovereign and God has willed it, that God has controlled it. It's because we haven't taken what he's given us and using it, used it. So I believe that that'll help. I believe that that'll help explain the sovereignty of God, and it'll help quicken your faith to where you can believe and receive.